This morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 11, this really difficult passage we've been looking at. And I say it's difficult because a lot of commentators say this is the most difficult passage in in Revelation to really wrap our mind around and ask the question, what is going on here? And uh, you've been patient with me as I've taken, this is the fourth time we've gone through verses 1 through 13, two weeks to really introduce the whole big context, and then last week and this week to finish up uh, with what uh, the Lord is saying here to us because of these two witnesses. Appreciate Brother Joe reading Second uh, Samuel, and we're continuing, of course, to read First and Second Samuel alongside of Revelation. We have David coming to the throne and, and being established by God, and we have Christ returning in Revelation, the ultimate king who will sit on David's throne. And we're drawing some parallels between those two. And so we're, I, I love to have that music of, of, the, of David coming and be established on the f- throne in our minds as we celebrate Christ coming to the throne in Revelation. But that's what we're looking at. And in this passage, we are looking at the parallel between two men who are called to preach the gospel specifically to the Jews during this period of judgment, which we call the tribulation period, warning them that their king is coming, comparing that then to our own mission to reach our community with the gospel. And if we can jump right into the reading of the text, and I'm sort of picking up from where we left off last week, and I am going to persevere, if you will, with me this morning, and we're going to finish this passage this morning all the way through verse 13. Jumping into verse 3, the Lord says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, that's roughly three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. You know, I learn a whole lot about things that are going on in the world from our resident retired Marine, Colonel Bobby Davis, and a lot of you have too. Now, the best things he knows, he tells me, he's not allowed to tell me. Otherwise, he'd have to kill me. But something he was telling me this past Wednesday night, I didn't realize before. I've often noticed, uh, as, as we look at military operations around the world, that often a civilized nation will warn the enemy that they are going to blow up a particular building or strike in a particular area because they don't want a lot of civilian casualties. Because if it's a place where there could be civilians they will be mercifully warning that area so that people who aren't involved in the conflict can get out of the way. You saw this last week when the Israeli military bombed the media building that Hamas and the Associated Press were operating uh, in the Gaza Strip. And there was no one hurt in this bombing because they warned everyone ahead of time. This is a target. We've got to take out this building. There's reasons we, for, for this. And, and it looks like they, they not only had time to get away, but if you go online, you can find lots of pictures and videos of this building. It looks like they got to set up cameras and everything and, 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 and watch the building be destroyed. But years ago, Brother Bobby has told us, there were seldom warnings like this to people in, 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 uh, to, to get out. 
And so civilian casualties were expected, and they were a part of war, because they didn't have the ability, like they do now, to be able to tell people who are occupying a location to get out of the area. They didn't have missiles like we have today. That can, are, are, they're so accurate, they can actually go down streets and look up addresses. So because they know exactly what target is going to be hit, they can warn people, get out. This place is going to be destroyed. You will die if you don't get to safety, but you can be saved. And that really is an example of what is going on with these two witnesses for the Jewish people in the tribulation period. They are picking up the message of John the Baptist and the preaching of Jesus himself, crying out, repent, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is about to come. He's really going to establish his kingdom. Trust in the death and resurrection of your Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is about to return in judgment, and you are going to be baptized with fire. There will be no more delay. There's one final angel that will blow one final trumpet, and then this final series of judgments are going to come rapidly, climaxing with the return of the king. Run to safety in the arms of your waiting shepherd while you still can. And these witnesses aren't the stereotypical guys walking around with billboards holding up signs saying, you know, judgment is coming, the end is near, and there's this uncloudy day, you know, and it looks brilliant outside, and judgment never comes. That's not what's going on here. These guys are preaching to their people in a time when the judgments have already started coming in the world. They've been described to us already in Revelation. John is told that there's going to be no more delay in chapter 10. And these other judgments have started coming around the world. Their audience have uh, perhaps already known bloodshed and famine and disease and oceans turning to blood and sky being darkened and vegetation being destroyed and fresh water poisoned and perhaps hideous creatures torturing and killing people. This is what we've already read about in Revelation. So there's this urgency to their message. Like I said last week, it's as if somebody drew the bow back and they're just waiting to release that arrow. That's the tension right now as we read through the book of Revelation. And this encourages us. It informs us about our own ministry as the Lord's witnesses today. Last week, we began to see that there are striking parallels between the ministry of these two witnesses and our ministry So what we read of them not only helps us to understand Revelation, which we need to do as as we're going through Revelation, but it also encourages us in our ministry in at least four vital areas of ministry. What are these vital areas? Well, the first one we looked at last week was the mission of the Lord's witnesses. Last week, we analyzed the clues in the text about what their mission was in chapter 11. The fact that they're called witnesses, just like in Acts 1.8. The fact that they prophesy, the text says. The fact that they dress in sackcloth. We looked at what that means. And the fact that they are identified in in verse 4 as two olive trees and two lampstands, which we'll see in a minute. And we put all of our understanding of those statements together, and we came up with what may have well been something like their mission statement, if they would have written one. They are preaching to their people to gravely and earnestly call lost people, people who are about to experience judgment, 
to trust in the death of Christ for their sins and his resurrection so that they will know and obey the Lord, escaping his imminent wrath and preparing themselves to enter the kingdom. And as we said last week, this is our message too. Only we need to cultivate a sense of urgency in carrying it out. Do you notice how intense this mission statement is? We, we get lax because, you know, we know judgment is coming, but there's no signs of it yet that we see, really. I mean, there's not, the, and the sun's not being darkened, and, you know, there, there isn't some of the things that you read about in Revelation, and, and day after day wears on, and you have these beautiful days and so forth, and yes, things are happening in the world, and that starts troubling us, and we think, well, maybe it's getting close, but really overall, Things are going along pretty well in America. You know, our lives seem pretty good. What's the sense of urgency? But the Bible says, your time is running out. Turn to Christ while you still can. He's about to return. But there are three more vital areas of the ministry of these witnesses that help us to understand our own. And that is what we are going to look at this morning. If the first is the mission of the Lord's witnesses, then the second is the authority of the Lord's witnesses. And I want you to look again in verse 3. It says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Now, I need to tell you, the actual word authority is not in this Greek text. The text literally reads, and I will grant to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy. It doesn't say what, what it's granting, but it's an expression that means granting authority. The idea is that the Lord is granting them authority or power. He is ordaining them. He's commissioning them. And we see this authority in the way Their ministries are described as we keep reading the text. So let's go on to verse 4. Notice what it says. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. We looked at this this verse last week, and we saw that the olive trees in Zechariah 4 and the lampstands are used here to remind us that God gave this vision to Zechariah that represented the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his anointed ones who represent the Lord of the earth, the Lord who is about to return. And the Lord gives them power and authority in Zechariah. And here he's saying, these men have power and authority. They have power and authority to protect themselves, for instance. Look at verse 5. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth. And consumes their foes. It may be an expression that they call down fire. I don't know. It could be fire from their mouths too. But we'll see the parallel in the Old Testament where fire was called down. So it might be that is what the meaning is here. But either way, fire is consuming their foes because of their decision to do such a thing. These witnesses. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, this is a really fascinating part of this account of the witnesses. And I want to take a few minutes to make some observations that will help us to understand the text. First, the description of these judgments help us to identify the witnesses. They are obviously meant to remind us of Moses 
and Elijah. Fire coming from their mouths is intended, I think, to remind us of Elijah's calling down fire from heaven to consume those who are trying to harm him in 1 Kings 18. And we're not going to take time to read that story, but that's what's happening. Some of you are familiar with that story. And the power to stop the rain is what Elijah does in 1 Kings 17. In fact, remember what James 5.17 says? That Elijah prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for how long? Three years and six months. Striking parallel. So the fire and the drought are pointing to Elijah, but the power to turn water to blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague, this is obviously a reference of the powers that God gave to Moses. Now, I will not go as far to say that these witnesses are Moses and Elijah. That's one of the views that's out there about this text, as if, as if they've been risen from the dead here to come back upon the earth. I mean, for one thing, later on in the text, they're going to be killed and they're going to rise again. And that would be impossible for the real Moses and the real Elijah because they've already died. Plus, notice that the text is written, if you read it carefully, it's written so that both of these witnesses have all of the miraculous powers mentioned, not just one or two, not just one of them. They can both call on fire and drought and turn water to blood and perform any number of plagues. That's what the text says. So these men, whoever they are, are meant to remind us of Moses and Elijah. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Well, we can perhaps answer that question by making a second observation, and it is this. The nature of their power and authority show us that God is using them not only as evangelists to, their cho- to his chosen people, but also he's using them as instruments of judgment. Notice at the end of verse 5, the statement is made, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Literally in the Greek text it says, this is how it is necessary that he be killed in this manner. So so when, when, when they call down fire from heaven, when somebody tries to harm them, it's necessary. It's already established that this is the way he should be killed. But look at the end of verse 6. It says that they bring whatever plague as often as they desire. So you're seeing two dynamics at play here. You're seeing the will of God ordaining these judgments upon the enemies of the gospel. It is necessary. It's ordained by God. But you're also seeing authority committed to these witnesses by God in order to carry out his judgment. So they have the authority to kill the enemies of the cross and to strike with plagues at will, but that authority has been given to them by God and he can take it away if he wants to. But isn't this the way that God has often brought judgment into the world? You think about the time God led the Israelites into the promised land. Those aren't always fun stories. God told them to kill every man, woman, and child, and the animals, and burn all the resources. Don't leave anything for yourselves. And you think, those children, they don't know anything that's going on. This is terrible. Why would God say that? How could God command such a thing? But this is not an example of one people group invading another and taking over. Otherwise, they would celebrate and have the spoils of war. This is not imperialism. 
This is God's ordaining his people to be an instrument of judgment on an intensely wicked, debased culture. And when the judgments come that are described in Revelation, they are not going to be discretionary all the time in who uh, receives that judgment. And throughout the Bible, we see both armies and individuals, Samson, for instance, who were God's weapon of judgment against the enemies of God. In fact, remember, Elijah himself, after winning the the challenge on Mount Carmel, right, where he had them dump all the water on the altar of the sacrifice so it would be impossible to light, then he prayed to God and God sent fire down showing that God's, that, that Elijah's God is real and all of the uh, prophets of Baal, their gods were false. After that happened, Elijah, with the help of the people, rounded up and executed himself. He executed all 850 prophets of Baal. God even raised up Syria, Assyria and Babylon to discipline his own people. So God does this kind of thing. He raises up and commits to judgment in the scripture at times. Commits the judgment to the hands of other people. So back to the question, why Moses and Elijah? Because Moses and Elijah appear at key times in the nation of Israel's history in the Bible. When the people and the kingdom are under attack from an idolatrous nation. In Egypt, the Israelites were living in a nation steeped in the worship of every kind of idol. And idolatry had a very negative, long-standing impact on the imagination of God's people and on their affection for worship only the one, worshiping only the one true God. So when Moses turned the water to blood and brought the other plagues on Egypt, he was being used as God's instrument to show in very specific ways that Jehovah rules over all of heaven and earth and all the water and all the gods that the Egyptians set up to worship were nothing but figments of their imagination. We just read a verse from Psalm 96 a little while ago together. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You have to hate it when you organize your whole empire around the worship of the gods who supposedly rule over all creation only to have the real gods show up and ruin everything. And Pharaoh was considered the god that, had made, that would make the Nile flood every year, the inundation of the Nile, which would water the area around there and, and cause the crops to grow. The, the Pharaoh had to do a ceremony to do that because he was looked at as a god. And Moses turned the water to blood. And the second plague was the Nile bringing swarms of frogs upon Egypt. The Egyptian goddess Hecate was depicted as having the head of a frog. Poor thing. Isis was the goddess of healing. Newt was the god of the sky. Ra was the sun god. And I can't take time this morning. It's a fascinating study, but I don't have time to, to, to match each of the plagues of Egypt which, with the Egyptian panoply of gods, although we could, you could do that. But when you look closely, you can see how the, the plagues confronted and judged the Egyptian people and their gods, demoralizing their pagan worship system, showing them to be no gods at all. So Moses appeared before the establishment of the kingdom to rescue the people from idolatry. Moses said to Pharaoh, what, remember? Let my people go that they may worship me. 
But Elijah appeared after the establishment of the kingdom, during a time when most of the nation had drifted back into idolatry to the extent that they had finally committed themselves absolutely to idolatry. That is why at the climax of Elijah's ministry, there is this big showdown on Mount Carmel to prove who the real God is once and for all. And God had done a lot of miraculous things for his people since Moses, but really Moses and Elijah are the only two prophets that God gave these judgmental powers to. Elisha, Elijah's predecessor, also had these powers, but remember why? He asked God specifically for a double portion of Elijah's power when God seemingly brought Elijah's ministry to a short end. So the two judging prophets in the Old Testament are Moses and Elijah for a specific reason. But prophets don't normally have that kind of power. Only Moses and Elijah. They were the witnesses. They were the ones giving testimony to the kingdom that God wanted to establish where he would be worshipped alone. And they came at two key times in the nation's history in order to enact judgment on the enemies of God's kingdom. So it makes perfect sense that Moses and Elijah are those who appear to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus says to his disciples at the very end of Matthew 16, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here among his disciples who will not taste death. They won't die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus is going to give them a foretaste of his power and glory that will be on display when that great day finally arrives, the day we read about in Revelation 19 and 20. So you begin then reading the first verse of chapter 17. You go right into chapter 17. Jesus takes them up to a high mountain. He's transfigured before them, and there appear to him Moses and Elijah talking to him. So when the Lord says in Revelation, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, he's referring to his two witnesses that he sees here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, or at least two men who have come in the spirit and the power of Moses and Elijah. And let's not forget, Jesus himself came offering the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he offered himself as the true king. And he came with miraculous powers. He fed people. He healed lame people. He restored limbs. He healed blindness. He cast out demons. He even raised the dead. But he did not come with judgmental powers. Even when he's overthrowing the money, uh, getting the money changers out of the temple, he's overthrowing tables and making a big scene and getting them out. He never uses some kind of miraculous power to do it, not judgmental power. He didn't strike the earth with plagues and call down fire from heaven. In fact, do you remember when the disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven? Some of you know this story. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus wanted to stay in a Samaritan village, and the people said no. And James and John, who were called the sons of thunder, ironically, he said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? I wonder where he got that idea, right? And Luke simply says that Jesus turned and rebuked them. And that's all it says. He said, no, stop it. That's not what we're about. That was not the nature of this coming to offer the kingdom at this time. Jesus was saying to his own people, if you will repent and believe in me, all the things that God promised as part of your kingdom will come true. 
Well, what did God promise in the Old Testament that would be part of his kingdom? We can read about these things in a lot of places. Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 28, for instance. He promised miraculous things. He said, your children won't die in infancy. He said, you'll win all your battles. You won't ever go hungry. Your crops will always be abundant. You'll win, you'll win all your battles. Your crops will be all abundant. You'll always have something to eat, something to drink. Um, God will cause you to flourish. There won't be any diseases, he says. This is a miraculous way of living. God promised, if you will follow the law and obey me uh, faithfully, this is what your kingdom is going to look like. And everybody's going to look around the world and say, wow, we want to worship this God too. That was the plan. And it failed, not because God's plan is imperfect, but because he was dealing with people who were fallen, who were imperfect. And God took the whole Old Testament to convince everybody we need a savior because we cannot do this on our own. And Jesus comes offering signs to the people to demonstrate the miraculous blessings that will come in the kingdom. That's why he's healing people. That's why he's getting rid of disease. He's feeding people. This is what the kingdom is supposed to be like. But they reject their king. So before Jesus returns again in Revelation, he sends these two prophetic witnesses warning that the kingdom is coming soon, calling to be able to repent and demonstrating the miraculous powers associated with the advancement and preservation of the kingdom. And this time, their authority and power is the judging sort. The miraculous powers that these two witnesses have suit the time in which they are preaching the gospel because this is what the Lord is doing. He's bringing judgment upon the earth For those who reject him, these witnesses have been granted authority to demonstrate on the local level what God is doing to judge the earth on the cosmic level, proving that they speak the truth. This is the authority of the Lord's witnesses. That's what's going on here in this text, as briefly as I can explain it. Now, my thesis overall, though, with this sermon is that the ministries of these two witnesses instruct and encourage our own ministry. Well, how does that work in this case? We don't have any powers to put on display when we proclaim the gospel, do we? Well, yes, in fact, we do. We have the power of the gospel itself. And that is not a secondary power. That is a primary power. That is the primary power. What did Paul say about the gospel in Romans 1.16? He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and notice, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile, the non-Jew. Now listen, I, I, we've heard this verse a lot, and you probably know what it means, and and you've used it in your teaching and preaching, some of you, and so forth. But I want you to understand, when Paul says he is not ashamed of the gospel, he doesn't mean that he is timid or shy about preaching the gospel, that that he's he's not going to be ashamed when it comes time to speak up about the gospel. What he means is that the preaching of the gospel does not put him to shame. In other words, the gospel has the power to move people to respond and to be changed. The shame, or he's talking about, is the kind of shame or pity that some of you might have experienced if you were in an evangelistic meeting and the evangelistic 
uh, the, the evangelist is preaching and he preaches his heart out and then he gives an invitation and no one comes down the aisle as if the preaching had no impact whatsoever. And after 20 verses or so of just as I am, people start feeling a little bit uncomfortable and they feel embarrassed for the guy. And, and I'm not saying this happens all the time, but sometimes it does. And, and certain personalities in the congregation feel the pressure to go forward, maybe just to pray or something to sort of relax the situation. And that's the kind of shame that Paul is talking about. Paul says that when we share the gospel, we don't have anything to worry about because the gospel will powerfully bring people to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ and be saved and have their lives transformed if they simply hear it and believe it. And it's still happening all over the world where the gospel is being preached and shared and people believe it and God changes their lives. Paul says this really happens. It doesn't happen with every time you share the gospel, but it's not the fault of the gospel. The gospel is powerful to do, do this. And this is why he says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God because we have seen that power at work in bringing people to Christ and transforming them. So that they are different people than they were before. So that they are new creations, healings or no, judgment powers or no. It is still the word of God that is effective in bringing people to salvation. And to emphasize this point, the Apostle Paul himself, he had apostolic authority from the Lord. Remember what happens in Acts 13? He strikes Elemas with blindness at Paphos. And he was in uh, Ephesus in, in, in Acts 19, Luke says, doing extraordinary miracles. But when it came to the real power, this is what Paul tells the Corinthians. He says, when I came to you, I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Because I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. In other words, I didn't make a big argumentation and put all this logical stuff in front of you. My preaching, he says, was in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There was a family who was in our church in Hendersonville for a while before the Lord called them to another ministry. It's a wonderful family. Children, believing children, uh, normal family. And I got to know them a little bit. And he said to me one day, he said, Pastor, he said, we were the family on the block that hated Christianity. And people would think there's no way God's ever going to save that family. And he was saved first, the husband, and began to change. And he was, I mean, all the bad stuff he was doing, he stopped and he started becoming loving to his wife and everything, but his wife couldn't stand it. She said, I just wanted my old husband back. I don't care. Uh, I, I don't, she was scared about what was happening. And then the Lord grabbed hold of her life and began to transform her. And she came to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and I, I was like stunned because I didn't even recognize, I wouldn't have guessed that looking at them. Not because they were dressed a certain way or anything like that. It was just because of their spirit, their loving spirit as a family, their, their intentional walking with Jesus Christ. That's not something that's natural. It's supernatural. 
And it comes because of the power of the gospel. Don't think we go out without these tools that we're missing where we can't call down fire from heaven, you know. Or uh, if we started doing that, we'd probably get in a lot of trouble, by the way. So it's pretty, it's a pretty good thing. But it, we don't have that kind of power. We don't have these, these healing powers and all this kind of thing. Not, not like it was when Jesus was here. Nobody can imitate that. But we have something much better. In fact, we don't go out being able to do all these things but realize that Jesus Christ himself presented these things and people still rejected his message. Even when the king himself was performing these miracles, they rejected it. It's the word of God that powerfully transformed. So, so we go with the most powerful part of it, the gospel itself. It has the power to change hearts and lives. And in fact, it has changed the world. The Roman Empire is now an ancient relic. Governments have risen and fallen, whether monarchical or tribal or communist or socialist or whatever. But in every continent on the planet, even if they will be persecuted for doing so, you will find believers who are worshiping the God of heaven, who have faith in Jesus Christ nearly two millennia away from the cross, who embrace Christ for salvation, who are wonderfully and gloriously transformed because of the message. So does our ministry have authority? When we take the gospel out into the community, you bet it has authority. Our authority is the word of God, and this is a powerful, unassailable authority. Now, there is a third vital area in the ministry of these witnesses, and a fourth. And I'm going to do these, ne- these last two relatively quickly compared to what I just did here. Because they really kind of go together. And it is this, this suffering of the Lord's witnesses. The Lord's witnesses are not immune to suffering. In fact, we're promised those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So you, you are not surprised to see it here in the text. The people of the earth who stand against God in the tribulation period and his son, when they hear the preaching of these witnesses and see what they can do, they're going to hate these guys. I mean, they're going to hate them with a vitriolic hatred, an acidic hatred. We've seen this kind of -of out-of-control rage in our own nation even recently, and sadly, I think it's growing. But this will be a global hatred. Why will there be such hatred for these witnesses? Because they will be preaching the coming of the truth about the death and resurrection and soon return and judgment of Jesus Christ. Jesus already told his original witnesses, they hated me and they will therefore hate you. That's what he told his disciples. Even though there will be terrible things happening on the earth in the name of God's judgment, you would think, People would say, wait a minute, maybe there is a God. Maybe he is going to judge us. Look at all the bad things that are going to happen or all the bad things that are happening in the world as these judgments are coming on the earth. But instead, they will spin the narrative. In fact, I can just hear, can't you? I can hear the explanations that are going to be given after a third of the vegetation is burned up and the water is being contaminated and the sky is being darkened. The climate change crowd is going to say, you know, we've been telling you about this for years And this is what's happened. You wouldn't listen. And others will be saying, especially after the demon locusts and hideous creatures show up that Revelation describes, see, we've been saying all along, we're not alone in the universe. 
These are alien creatures come to destroy us. And then there will likely be international laws put into place and regulations and people put in power that everyone has to follow for the good of the planet because all of these things are going to happen. And if you have the audacity in that day to actually say, no, 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 that's not what's happening. This is judgment from God, the creator of the world. And go against the narrative and not trust the science. You will not only be held in contempt, you'll also be hated and killed, Revelation says. That's what's going to be happening on the earth in that day. You can't use that outdated religion, they will say. That outdated religious message to explain what's happening. Don't talk to us about your coming Messiah. You're you're living back in the medieval days. And I'm not saying I know exactly how this is going to go down, but when you look at the world and what's going on, if the Lord comes really soon, you can see how this would all play out very easily. People all over the earth will want to destroy these witnesses, and finally, the witnesses will be killed. So in Revelation chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, it tells us when they have finished their testimony, the beast, which is the first time we hear of him in Revelation, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, which is, means it's actually Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, and there's people all over the world, it's a global event, will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going to say anything here about this beast because we're going to meet him again in chapter 13. And we'll talk quite a bit about what, what the scripture means here when it talks about the beast rising from the bottomless pit. But I do want to call your attention to just a couple of things in this passage before we move on. First, I want you to notice that the beast makes war on the witnesses and kills them. Notice it says at verse 7, when they have finished their testimony. Those words strike me for some reason. Even when I was, we were doing an exercise when we first had COVID back last year, we were reading through Revelation together week after week. Those words would always, would always strike me. Because it may look like to the world, the beast has won that day. That the witnesses were finally defeated because the beast was able to rise up and overcome them and kill them. But the beast is able to overcome them and kill them only because of one thing. The Lord determined that the ministry of the witnesses is over. Until then, they cannot be touched. In fact, we'll see this later in Revelation 13. Again, when we look at the beast, in verse 7, it says that the beast will be allowed by God to make war against the saints. Everyone on earth except believers will worship the beast, but God has the beast on a leash. He's allowing him to make war against the saints. The beast cannot do what God does not allow. You see, each of us has a certain time period in which to minister, in which to be the Lord's witnesses. And every one of our times has an expiration date that only the Lord knows when our testimony will be finished. But the Lord has control. The Lord has control over that time. Nobody around us does. Not even the devil himself can influence that time. 
And so we need to take the opportunity while we have it to reach our generation until our time is over. Jesus knew this about his own ministry to Israel. Do you remember what he says? You're reading through the Gospels all the time. He's continually saying, my time has not yet come. You remember that? Jesus would say, my time has not yet come. And when is that time? Well, the time he's talking about, as you keep reading the Gospels, is the time of his crucifixion, when his public preaching ministry would be over. Until then, Jesus knew he was safe. He was in God's plan. Once in Luke chapter 13, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they mockingly warn him, you'd better get away from here. Herod is looking to kill you. Remember this in Luke 9? And Jesus said, I love this. Jesus says, you go tell that fox. He says, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. And what he's saying is, I'm going to minister whether Herod likes it or not. And he can't touch me until the father has decided my course is over. And that's the way we need to feel about our own ministries. It's no less for us who minister. Now, there's a second thing I want you to see here, though. I want you to notice that these witnesses were treated with the same kind of disrespect and utter rejection that Jesus Christ received in this place when he was crucified. It's not incidental that the city of Jerusalem here is referred to in our text not by its name, but by the names of places that were notoriously wicked symbolically, and it says where their Lord was crucified. Because these witnesses receive a similar contempt. Grant Osborne, one of the commentators on Revelation, points out that to allow the bodies to remain unburied in that culture was a sure sign of utter rejection and scorn. For them to lie and defeat, humiliated, unburied. And then to have the whole earth rejoicing and making a holiday out of the fact that you, were, you, you met your death. But this isn't the only way that these witnesses parallel the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only are they killed by those who hate them, but God actually raises them from the dead. And that brings us to the final aspect of the ministry of these witnesses. And then we'll look at the implications of this together, both of those. And that is the victory of the Lord's witnesses. The victory. You might think, victory? How is this a victory? The beast kills them. Satan has won the day, hasn't he? But if you're thinking that way, you've forgotten the whole book of Revelation is written to those who, what? They conquer. These are the victorious ones he's writing to. All the promises at the beginning of Revelation for those who conquer, who are victorious. And what does it mean to conquer in Revelation? It means to remain faithful to the end in your service for Christ no matter what. Because in the day, in the, at the end of the day, you will be vindicated. He says, but after three and a half days, a breath of life comes from God and enters them. These witnesses, it says, they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. 
And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. How is this a victory? Four reasons as we wrap this up this morning. First of all, it's a victory because these witnesses share in the Lord's resurrection. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. This has got to be very alarming and frustrating for all the people on the earth who are rejoicing and having a party because the beast killed these two witnesses. And yet after three and a half days, roughly parallel to the three days Jesus is in the tomb, these witnesses come back to life. I mean, now what? The beast has done everything he can to them, including killing them. And once you kill your enemy, there's really nothing more you can do to him. So what do you do with a martyr who won't stay martyred? The answer is nothing. Death is the ultimate end game. And if death is rendered powerless, there's nothing that can happen that can touch you. You will live forever as Christ lives forever. Those who kill these witnesses are the actual ones who will perish So really, the witnesses are the ultimate victors here. And then, not only did they share in the Lord's resurrection, they also shared in the Lord's presence. I love this verse. In in verse 12, it says, They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud. In a way, I think they experienced what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. They went up to heaven to meet the Lord in the air, and so they will ever be with the Lord. How can this be a defeat For these witnesses, they were the Lord's witnesses after all. That's what we are, by the way. We're his witnesses. He can do with us what he wants. And whatever the beast did to them, they are now with the Lord forever. Death, where is your sting? Hey, grave, where's your victory now? That's the idea of that passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Where is it? It's nowhere. It's gone. It's taken away because of the resurrection For three and a half days, the Lord allowed the enemies of the cross to have their little time of futile rejoicing so they could make their holiday, their international holiday. What do they call it? I have no idea. The witnesses are finally dead day, maybe. I don't know. It will be all over the news, everywhere. But then these witnesses come back to life, ruining the party, raining on Satan's parade, and they will rise to meet the Lord. That's vindication. They share in the Lord's resurrection and in his presence. They also share in the Lord's judgment because it says in verse 11 that great fear fell on those who saw them come to life and their enemies watched them. In verse 13, at that hour, there is this great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people are killed. This is obviously the judgment response from God upon those who were rejoicing over the slain body of his witnesses. And he vindicates them. But it is God's judgment here on their behalf, God's vindication of his witnesses. And finally, they share in the Lord's salvation. And I think it's something we should reflect on. After we read about the 7,000 people who were killed in the earthquake, it says in the rest of verse 13 that the rest were terrified and give glory, gave glory to the God of heaven. You read all the way through the book of Revelation in the judgment part like this. You don't see people on earth during the time of tribulation and judgment giving glory to God very often in Revelation. It is a very rare thing. 
and revelation, even when there are clear and unmistakable signs that God is really the judge here. And this is what he is doing on the earth. And there's this acknowledgement of that fact. The response is that people shake their fists at God and curse him because of the plagues. And people call for the rocks to fall on them and hide them from the lamb's wrath. That's the response normally. But here there's a distinction between those who were killed in the earthquake and those who were terrified by these events and gave glory to the God of heaven. And what I wonder here is if we are not seeing the evidence of saving faith, those who saw and heard the witnesses and in the end gave glory to God and came to him. And I wonder then if with God being glorified in the earth either way, if there is not here another reason that these witnesses are victorious because their message was vindicated. In the end, God used the witnesses to point people to him and bring glory to him. The beast thought it had destroyed the witnesses and along with them, their ability to point people to God. But in the end, God used them to bring people to himself. That is the victory of the witnesses. And that really, that should be our victory too. Not that we are vindicated even, even though that's our hope. Not that we're shown to be in the right, although God will give us that satisfaction, but that those that we love and want to see come to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to know they have eternal life with God can, can hear the gospel and will be there on the new earth with us, worshiping God forever as we live with him. These are the parallels between the remarkable ministry the mercy ministry that we read of in Revelation 11 and our ministry today. And as we go out into the community, as we better learn to witness and share the gospel, we have to realize we share a similar mission with these witnesses. We go with a great power, the transforming power of the gospel. And we endure any suffering because we know that in the end, Satan cannot touch us. We are on the winning side. And all of the energy and the sacrifice and the time of our lives and the discomfort we may experience as we live for the Lord as his witnesses is nothing. It's nothing compared to the glory that awaits us in the great vindication. So I hope this text will encourage us and fuel our desire to be the Lord's witnesses as we continue to trust him. Father,